that was, I think, a um, pretty good production meeting. Yeah, it was extremely productive. Actually, that's mm-hmm. probably why they call it a production meeting is because you're supposed to produce something, right? Be productive. Oh, no, actually, um, it was actually named after the person that invented it. Uh, Sally J. Productive was the first uh-huh. person to say, like, hey, when we all get together, sometimes we don't get things done. What if we produced things during our meetings? She was an innovator, let me tell you. I think I've heard of her. They called her SJ Pro. That's right. That was her rap name. She was also a prolific rapper. She and DJ Cool Herc uh, used to hang out back in the day. We've only had production meetings since like the 1970s. I actually thought the pro was for prolific, but apparently it's for productive. No, she actually didn't do a lot beside that, honestly. She she rapped, but that didn't go anywhere. And she and the, the you know the production meetings, those are like two things, but not, you know, prolific. Pretty lazy the rest of the time, honestly. But, you know, who are we to judge the the, the, the world that she was living in? She, she did more than we did, honestly. She invented <laughs> production meetings. Here yeah. we are talking about her all these years later. Yeah. Well, we're making up historical facts. It must be time for SJW, social justice weirdos. Hi, I'm joyless feminist Charlie McCorn. I use they, she pronouns. And I am Lenny Peppers. I use she, her pronouns. How are you doing today, Lenny? I am doing pretty dang good. That is that is good to hear. It's a snowy day uh, in western Montana, um, and I'm excited to jump into the wild and worldly world of whatever the fuck this show is about. I'm still not entirely sure. We've been doing it now for, I have no idea, for months and months, I have no clue what we're okay. doing. I don't know what this show's about. I'm going to admit it. We just come to this one room once a week. And we sit down and we start talking and we record it. Like, that's basically... And, you know, somebody started just putting this up on online. Don't give away our secrets. Don't give away our podcast secrets. If people know that they can just get together <laughs> in a room and record their conversations and put it online, no, the, the somebody, podcast like, market I don't will even be... know how these are ending up on, on, on the podcatchers. Like, we're just... Like, we came to this room, we started talking, and then the next thing, the text started rolling in. Maybe it's, uh, you know what, maybe it's those pigs in the federal government that are tapping all of our phone lines. Yeah. Then you might say, Charlie, should you really be using the word pigs to describe them? Like, yeah, they're cops. Fuck them. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry, I just watched uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, and uh, I'm even more mad at systemic inequality. Like, good movie, but boy, it it really, really shows the, the depths that the federal government went to to completely upend civil rights for the African-American movement in the 1960s and 70s. I, what is this movie? I've, tell me more. Okay, so so Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, it's it's a new release. Um, it stars Daniel uh, Kaluuya from, uh, and uh, Lakeith Stanfield, both from Get Out, and it's a biopic of uh, the chairman of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers, Fred Hampton, mm-hmm. uh, who, uh, I mean, spoiler alert... Here's a tough thing. This is like a historical thing, and I've studied it pretty extensively in college, and I know I knew the story. I don't want to like spoil the ending of this really fantastic movie, but it is about a uh, a rat, an FBI informant working inside the Black Panthers to try to take them down as the Black Panthers are trying to feed poor kids. They're trying to build up mutual aid societies. They are trying yeah. to change the, the tide of systemic inequality in their community. And the, and the FBI uh, browbeat this guy into being a, uh, an informant for them. And so it is, it's biblical. It is Judas and the Black Messiah. It is about the federal government trying to kill this Black Messiah that they are afraid will unite African-Americans and overthrow uh, the government. 
Interesting. Okay, I'm definitely going to put that on the list. It's so good. Five out of five amazings. Great acting across the board. Amazing performances by by the two leads. Uh, Jesse Plemons is is really good in it uh, as well. Um, Martin Sheen plays J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, it's going to be kinda like Richard Nixon. way better than what I watched last night. What did you watch last night? Vampire's Kiss with Nick Cage. Oh, I've never actually seen that movie. <laughs> okay, we got to watch this movie. We got to... We got to find a time to get together some of our most weirdo friends and watch this movie together because it was, it was bad. <laughs> Pretty intense. Well, I look forward to our, our vaccinated future where we can all hang out and watch creepy movies again. Yeah, there is like a mime domestic dispute in this movie that is oh just like, why is this in here? You know, I used to date a mime. Yeah. Uh, we, we broke up because they kept putting up walls. Oh, yeah. And it's really hard to break through those when you can't see that, them. Is that joke funny? I said that as if like putting up walls is a thing that mimes do. I could have said like a builder, but I was I was in mime mode. <laughs> uh, speaking of mime mode, what are we talking about on this week's episode, Lenny? Uh, not mimes. Um, we are going That's to next be... week. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, the social I'm... justice uh, lives of mimes. Yeah. Well, here's what I have to say about that. Um, hey, to quote the great Audre Lord, hey, mimes, your silence will not protect you. <laughs> okay, perfect. I'm going to look forward to like hearing all about that in the future. We'll see what happens. Uh, probably in the future where there's flying cars and stuff, but, you know. Uh, the future we're not getting. There's that other universe, like one one turn off of ours that has like flying cars and socialized healthcare. Yeah, and, that and one. we have generational trauma. And where some of the biggest like bad things happening in social justice are happening to mimes. You know, mimes. It's it's a real silent problem. I. <laughs> it's a silent epidemic. It's a. <laughs> Listen, the mimes need us to speak for them, okay? We need to use our privilege as as performers who aren't who aren't stupid mimes to to speak up for them. Okay. We're going to get so much mime hate. Yeah. Mail what is, from well, this. well, they better speak up because I can't I can't hear them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <sighs> we are talking about the blues again this week. Oh, sweet. Um, so specifically, I'm going to be talking about Mildred Bailey. Okay. I, I do not know Mildred Bailey. Okay. So Mildred Bailey uh, was born Mildred Rinker in 1907, and she was a Native American jazz singer in the 1930s. Oh. She's known as the Queen of Swing. So oh, I'm going to be her. talking about her a little bit, but I'm going to do a Quick background in popular music and Native American history. Okay. So even like way back in the like 16, 1700s, like Native Americans have been like taking the music that they heard from fur trappers and missionaries and, you know, other types of colonizers. Two people that have a great, famously great taste in music, missionaries yeah. and fur trappers. Like yeah. they've, got, they've got some deep dives. They've got just, if you want to hear the best vinyl collection, you go find a missionary or a fur trader and you will lose your mind on the quality of their music. Uh, no, but the thing is, is like Native Americans have been picking up music and adapting it 
forever because music is such a deeply like important aspect to American Indian culture. Mm -hmm. And so like, in fact, one of the very first opera houses in the country was a Native American opera, opera house, like right around like the time when America became America. Uh, ballet in the 18th century was huge. And so when it comes to like indigenous musical trends, even in the 1800s, tribes were beginning to develop their own like hem um, repertories. Is that what they're called? <clears throat> uh, I don't. I, I don't know. I'm not a fur trapper. <laughs> well, I am, so I should know that. <laughs> My parents were missionaries, though, and that's something that I live with. Um, they had like fiddle traditions. There were big, huge Native American marching bands that would march in like some of the biggest parades in America. All like just basically throughout history, like all of these. And but the thing was, is that they've been mostly erased because they aren't considered like Native American music. Like when people hear want to hear Native American music, they want to hear drums and um, anything beyond that, like is kind of like pushed aside or completely erased from history. Oh, oh, wow. I, I never thought of that. That's a very interesting idea that there's sort of this like the the overall like colonial culture will look at a group of people and their music is is the almost like pre-columbian version of it despite having the huge influences and in, in the way things change does that sentence make any sense i feel like i stumbled a little bit over it yeah and, and the thing is is like the drumming and singing that we hear and associate with native american music today is really just music that's specifically from a couple of different tribal groups not like they even erased the music that was too like western european sounding when they came over here um so if somebody oh, was wow. singing like lullabies and stuff like that 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 didn't sound like what they thought natives should sound like that's been erased as well that's um, fucked up like as that is that is super fucked up i mean it makes total sense when you say it but it's nothing i've never really kind of engaged with before but that i mean that makes total sense for the way that this stupid fucking country is yeah even in um when they started doing like um adding music to like plays and then later on adding music to film the white people making the music that went into the film and went into the plays would make their music kind of sound like the drumming sounds that were associated with Native American music. And so they like even like went on to perpetuate like this is the only way that Native Americans can sound. Holy cow. So uh, Native Americans have been active for centuries. There's been composers of European art music. In fact, the late 16th century composer Diego Lobato, I think is how it's pronounced, I Great name for record. a composer. Are you fucking kidding me? Great name for a composer. He was an Inca who in 1594 became a chapel master in a cathedral in Ecuador. And well, let's just say music is important to our culture and we've been in the ranks of popular music for a very, very long time. For, for centuries. And it's more than just like the stereotypical idea of sort of the culture has perpetuated about what music should, what good music should sound like from yeah. And and I have to say that blues and jazz, uh, we have a like very, very deep roots in blues and jazz from the very beginning. There's some really great documentaries on this, um, including Rumble, 
and uh, which is on PBS. Basically, they were like looking at the roots of blues and they found that there was this very specific style of singing that came from Native Americans adapting hymnal music into like our, like their style of singing. Oh, wow. And so like the intermixing of Native American and black people, especially like in the South and even up in Chicago, was like the birthplace of blues and jazz. But like, again, Native Americans have been completely written out of that history. Um, some famous like blues and jazz musicians are uh, Charlie Patton, Cherokee and Choctaw descent, uh, who's the father of Delta Blues, spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-Y, by the way. Ooh, nice. Uh, Hallen Wolf, also known as Chester Arthur Bennett, who was a blues singer and guitarist and harmonica player, and he was also Choctaw. Let me jump in. Both of those names, also great jazz man names. Yeah. Uh, Oscar Pettiford, uh, jazz double bassist, cellist, and composer. He was also Choctaw, and he basically performed with uh, at Milton's Playhouse with Dizzy Gillespie and oh, wow. um, kind of led like the bop music of that time. So like I said earlier, I'm going to talk about Mildred Bailey. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, table is set. We have an empty chair. We're inviting Mildred Bailey to it. We know where everything is. We know how it got there. Let's meet our guest. Yes. Uh, she was a Native American jazz singer during the 1930s, and she was known as the Queen of Swing. Uh, she's also known as the Rockin' Chair Lady and Miss Swing. Oh, Rockin' Chair Lady. Rockin' Chair Lady. Yes. Yeah, so rockin' Chair was like her top hit. Oh, okay. I get it. Like a rocking chair. Not yeah. a rocking no, no, no. chair lady, which is how I, I heard it. <laughs> like, oh, that chair lady, look at her. Oh, she's rocking. Yeah, we're talking about the blues, so it's a rocking chair without ooh. the G. Ooh, right, gotta drop that G. <laughs> yeah. Like Tommy knocking. Shameless plug. Right, exactly. Um, so she hit number one several times on the charts during her time. Mm -hmm. But a little bit about, like, her youth. She grew up on the Coeur d'Alene Reservation in Idaho, which is not that far from here, actually. Yeah, it's pretty close. Uh, where her and her mother were enrolled members of the Coeur d'Alene tribe. And uh, she... Basically, it looks like everyone in her family was kind of a big deal. Her younger brothers became musicians, and her brother, Al Rinker, um, performed with Bing Crosby... And her brother, Charles Rinker, became a lyricist. And Miles Rinker was a clarinet and saxophone player. And then later became a booking agent. So, like, her, like, brothers and herself, like, were all, like, deep into, the, like, the blues and uh, swing. Wow. What a musical family. Yeah. So she was born on a farm in Washington. And her mother was a member of, like I said, the Coeur d'Alene people. Mm -hmm. And she was also a devout Roman Catholic. And um, her great-grandfather, Basil Peony, was a well-known head speaker and song leader of the Coeur d'Alene at the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so he, his ability to create like indigenized Catholic hymns helped to guide the tribe during difficult times of the active colonization by Jesuit missionaries to like that area and even this area. Yeah. At that time. 
And um, so her father played the fiddle and he would have like these big dances and her mom played piano every evening and taught her how to play and sing. And they hosted Saturday night gatherings and they actually created a small music and dance hall, probably similar to like a juke joint. Okay. Um, Real happen in place. Yeah. And it was like the home for local ranchers and... Her and her mom would play piano there, and she would also accompany her mom in traditional native ceremony where she heard and practiced traditional songs uh, that would later influence her unique singing voice. Which, by the way, like tons of people who like sang the blues for years and years after Mildred was gone um, talk about how her unique singing voice influenced their singing voice. And so, like, that style that she created mm -hmm. is still in blues today when you hear it wow so it still still connects all the way back now these these performances that that, that she was doing at this uh this uh juke joint this juke-esque joint i should say mm -hmm. uh was this was this was like a, a a mixed race like crowd was this mostly native americans were there were there white people african-american people sounds like there was like White people, there was probably church people there that um, mission, like that were part of the same mission. People mm -hmm. who were ranchers, a lot of Native Americans, and there were some black people there too. Mm -hmm. Basically, she had a pretty interesting childhood. Um, she was super interested in jazz like when she was a teenager, and also so was her brother Al and their neighborhood. Um, Harry Lillis Crosby, who we all know today as Bing Crosby. Ooh, yes, we do. And, uh, like, they hung out together and they wrote, like, liner notes. And uh, at one point, Bing Crosby said that Mildred Bailey gave me my start. She took off to Hollywood for new, broader fields. And a year later, Al and I followed her there. She introduced us to Marco Wolf at the time a very big theatrical producer, and we were on our way with a lot of her material, I might add. Oh, uh, she's also, whoa. yeah, like Bing Crosby, like is like, Mildred Bailey gave me my start. That blows my mind, kind of. Like that, that is, that is so interesting because obviously everyone knows Bing Crosby and I'm very glad that he was very open yeah. about being like, hey, a Native American woman is why I am here. That's super cool. Yeah, yeah. He was he was like really good friends with her her brother, and then she like basically. It said that she's actually the one who introduced Bing Crosby to Louis Armstrong. She basically told Crosby that he needed to hear Armstrong if Crosby wanted to be a serious jazz singer, and so he kind of she kind of introduced him to like that, and and the rest is history <laughs> oh that's great oh i was just going to complain about uh bing crosby being a shitty dad but i couldn't organically work it into the conversation so i'll just say you stopping some tweets yes we know bing crosby was a shitty dad <laughs> yeah uh so back to mildred she was married like a bunch of times she yeah. married uh ted bailey and like divorced him right away but she kept his last name because she sound thought it sounded more american than rinker Oh, sure. I've, there have been people that I've wanted to marry because it would change my last name. Like, oh, that does sound good. I should seduce this person. 
this topic comes up so much in our conversations. We should do something with it. Maybe I should just not talk so much about seducing people on this podcast. Like maybe I should. <laughs> That's the whole reason why I started my other podcast was to ask famous people out, like, publicly. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's all it is. It's just me being like, all right, who's on the list today? <laughs> yeah. The podcast, look, stay tuned for Win a Date with Lenny Peppers, coming soon yeah. to the podcatcher. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she like married a whole bunch of times. She married another guy named Benny Stanford. Um, Ooh, good jazz name. A lot of good jazz names and blues names in this episode. Yeah, it's almost as if like these were the people who started jazz and then everybody else kind of named themselves after that from then on. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, <laughs> I wish, I wish we could, we could do something like that. I wish people would start naming themselves after variations of our names to, to put yeah. it in a time well, period. My name is Lenny Peppers, which is also a very good jazz name. That that really is. That's an excellent jazz. Your name is excellent for a lot of things. I'm trying to remember what comedian it was that said that you had the, the name of like a really like worn out cat skills comedian from the 1960s. Yeah, Lenny Peppers. And another one said that I sounded like a private eye. Ooh. Uh, from like a 1960s movie, like Lenny Peppers, Private Eye. <laughs> Lenny um, Peppers, Have Gun, Will Travel. Yeah, people like think that these are roasts, but I really, really, um, I really like these roasts. Yeah, well, you had a cool name. Um, so she also made an album with Bessie Smith, uh, who okay. we talked about in an earlier episode of um, mm -hmm. this show. And then she eventually divorced and then remarried again. Uh, to Red Norvo, a xylophonist, improviser, and band leader who worked I'm more with... of a fan of... No, never mind. I almost made a joke that could have some connotations. <laughs> James, cut this out. <sighs> Gotta be careful. No, uh, leave it in there because then people know that we almost make really bad jokes sometimes and we stop ourselves because we are good people but still humans at the root of it all. Yep. Sometimes we recognize the thing that we're about to say can be taken not in the way that we intended to be taken. Um, and then so, sometimes we don't. <laughs> and then sometimes we don't and then I'm sitting in my friend's house and everyone's staring at me and asking was that an Asian joke? And I have to be like, oh my god no. I just learned that Real thing that happened. I felt terrible about it. My friends, like whole family, just turning at me. And I'm like, "Oh, is that is that a is that a stereotype? I I didn't know. I'm sorry. I didn't recognize that. I apologize. Because listen, sometimes you can save yourself by not saying stupid things. But if you say stupid things, just own up to it. You know? Yeah. Just, just recognize. Yeah. Just recognize it. Don't be like me. Uh, constantly, constantly putting my foot in my mouth. Yeah. And then you Jane have to hop out of the room on one foot, and it's just embarrassing, mm -hmm. ultimately, <laughs> in the end. <laughs> well, she she married this guy, Red Norvo. They were like a, a dynamic couple. They did like a whole bunch of really cool stuff. Hang on, mm -hmm. I'm going to sneeze. Okay. Uh, they were married... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't stop laughing at that. Okay. <laughs> I... Anyway, they were married in 1942. 
They were known as Mr. and Mrs. Swing. I've met a couple of those in my life. They're they're at the bar seeing if they'll come, if you'll come be their unicorn for them. Yeah. Uh, and they ultimately ended up getting divorced, uh, but they remained good friends for years. Uh, so she sang with tons of well-known artists. Was very talented, um, and she hung out with Billie Holiday. Like they sang a whole bunch of stuff together. And pianist Teddy Wilson, whose partnership with Billie Holiday's in the 1930s bequeathed us one of the great collective canons of jazz history, uh, once said, uh, Mildred Bailey was a much better singer than Billie. (laughs) (laughs) And since he collaborated (laughs) with... He, he, like, he collaborated with both artists, so it carried, like, authority, mm-hmm. um, but not enough to, like, make Billy, like, be as famous as mm-hmm. she should sure. be, though. Uh, she's a fixture in New York's hottest jazz clubs and is less well-remembered today than her contemporaries. But a poll of leading music writers around the time of that opera house ranked her as the second best female jazz singer in the world, just behind Holly. I was going to ask who was number one. Yeah. And she actually was a little bit bitter about, like, um, not being as famous. She blamed her plumpness for her lack of commercial success. And uh, others suggested that she had, like, a bad temper and a short tongue, and that was her undoing. But it, what it came down to is that she, throughout her life, blamed obesity on it, mm-hmm. and she set, claimed that it was a glandular condition, but many of her friends said that she had a great love of food, and that's why that was her downfall. And with Billie Holiday, it, this is actually one that I came across when I was doing research for this, so, like... Somebody else's downfall was drugs and stuff, but Mildred's was food. But they made it sound like the food was way worse than the drugs and stuff. Well, they're, so well, really they're, well they're jazz and blues musicians. Like, I don't want to stereotype anything, but of course they're going to prefer drugs to food. Like, of course they're going to... <laughs> any performers. Any performers. Yeah, how they made it, like, so much worse, like, in this article. And it it's, like, horrible. Wow. She continued to form through, uh, perform through the mid-1940s. Um, she ended up ultimately like having a bunch of health problems that caused her to separate away from her career. Uh, she'd been a long-time diabetic. She suffered from a heart condition. And uh, um, so eventually her and her two pet dash hounds retired in a farm in upstate New York. I think Poughkeepsie? Oh, of course. Home, home of Ed Wood. Home of Edward D. Wood Jr. And whoever's listening to us in Poughkeepsie, shout out to you. Hey, Hi. shout out to Poughkeepsie. <laughs> she was a particular favorite at, like, the Cafe Society. Like, she partic- continued to do little things here and there. But her medical bills basically bankrupted her. And so Jimmy Van Housen arranged to split her medical bills with Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, and they kind of helped her out of that. Oh, that's so and... funny. I, I hate to interrupt. Frank Sinatra did a lot of things like that for, for performers uh, during his whole career. Um, probably most famously, uh, he paid for Bela Lugosi's funeral. When, when really? Bela Lugosi was flat broke, huh. um, deep, deep in debt, and he died, and, and it was Frank Sinatra that paid for the whole thing. 
He didn't even wasn't even like friends with him. He just like liked to help out performers. That is super interesting. Go Frank Sinatra. Yeah. That's what we should do when, you know, all of the money from this podcast comes rolling in is just help out other performers. I think so too. I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping to pay for a lot of people's funerals. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, all other performers. SJW, we're going to put you in the ground. <laughs> Has a podcast ever released a beef track before with other podcasts? Could we do that? Could we just, like, do some... <laughs> just just, just air all of our beef in cool rhyming couplets? Yes, we need to do that. <laughs> okay, well, that that is... She died panelists um, in New York, and... Sadly, her low self-esteem, body image problems, and failing health prematurely crippled her career and kept her from developing into the superstar that she so richly deserved to be. And so that is the life of Mildred Bailey. That is super fascinating. That is that is an area of, of music and these genres of music I had no idea about. And I'm sort of fascinated by all the things I learned by it. Me too. And also, this episode was a blast. This was a lot of fun. We're finally figuring it out. Sorry for those first episodes. We're still figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm not, I don't feel bad at all. No, I don't feel bad either. I feel bad for people that have to listen to it. <laughs> like, like this is just like half an hour out of my week that I never have to think about again. Like there are people who are putting this in their ears right now who, you know what? Yeah. I don't know how you made these choices to get here, but thanks. Thanks for, thanks for fucking up. Yeah, and as usual, we're ending our episode on... By insulting um, the audience. <laughs> yeah, a regretful note. <laughs> uh, this has been Social Justice Weirdos. I am Lenny Peppers. I'm Charlie McCorn. Remember, you might not be able to change the world, but you can still throw a brick. <laughs> <laughs>